Welcome, you happy warrior, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, solemnly dedicate myself to revealing how the world really works. And that is only for you, you happy warriors, or you want to be happy warriors, or you happy warriors in training. Thank you for being part of the show, and thank you for everything you've been doing in the last couple of weeks for promoting the show, because our numbers have skyrocketed very gratifyingly. For me, it's exciting. It means that uh, I find it easier to envisage each and every one of you listening to the show, which drives me to greater heights of achievement in terms of preparation and in terms of delivery. So uh, imagine there you are driving down the road uh, late one evening on a long trip. Uh, You're going to be driving for the next nine or ten hours. You're expecting to arrive at your destination um, at about 7 a.m. in the morning, and you've got a long way to go. It's uh, six or seven in the evening, and you're driving along, and you see a man hitchhiking by the side of the road. You don't know what came into you. Maybe you were just filled with a sense of gratitude that instead of standing by the side of the road, you are driving a comfortable, safe, fast-moving automobile uh, that is a pleasure to drive, and you, you just felt that you were overflowing with gratitude and you wanted to share some of that. And you stopped and the man climbs in and becomes a passenger on your journey. And as you're driving along and the uh, the sun goes down, it gets dark and the amount of traffic on the road diminishes and uh, there's long, long stretches uh, of open highway with no uh, gas stations and no off-ramps or anything. And you start thinking to yourself, my goodness, you know, uh, here I am, I, uh, you know, you're either a man or, or a woman, I think it's unlikely that women would stop for male hitchhikers. But at any rate, uh, you start questioning, uh, how safe are you? What you don't know about anything about this man. Uh, on for his part, he looks at you and he sees you driving an expensive car and you're well dressed and he thinks to himself or you think that he may be thinking to himself hello 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 uh, we've got a soft target right here maybe who knows maybe he's a psychopath what like who knows if you know middle of the night a uh, remote far off road anything could happen what is the most important thing you could find out about this man that would bring you some measure of comfort and security, a feeling of, okay, you know what, this is fine, stop worrying. What is the one thing? Would it help you to know that he had a PhD, he had a doctorate degree in philosophy? Would that help you? No, it really wouldn't, not in the slightest. Um, You know, there's, there's nothing in any study of philosophy that would, uh, would play a role in providing you with a reluctance to kill somebody if it suited you. Right? There's, there's nothing. Um, what would it help if, uh, if you knew that he was very knowledgeable about tying nautical knots? He could really work rope into all kinds of interesting patterns. No, that wouldn't tell you anything at all. 
Uh, I'll tell you the only answer that I can think of. And the only answer I can think of is that if it became apparent during the conversation that he is genuinely uh, a Bible-believing Christian or a Bible-believing Jew. In that case, then he has a belief system that precludes him killing you and driving off in your car. Uh, There's a belief system. And it's, it's pretty unequivocal. Thou shalt not murder is the sixth commandment. It's, it's pretty direct. It's, there's not a lot of confusion there. So you can then rely on that. And this is merely a, an, a, my attempt at an up-to-date uh, version of a story that I heard repeatedly uh, from my teachers about their teachers and the teachers of their teachers. Uh, Most of my spiritual background comes from Eastern Europe, from Poland, Lithuania, Latvia. That's sort of where I am rooted um, spiritually, meaning that the teachers of my teachers came from that area. And it was lived in that area, and it was so strong that as a 16-year-old boy, when my father finished high school in uh, a small town called Port Elizabeth on the uh, uh, Indian Ocean's uh, side of South Africa, 16 years old, uh, he traveled by himself, long journey, by ship to Europe, and he attended a Bible college in Lithuania uh, for many years, in fact, until World War II had broken out. So uh, so I know a lot of stories, a lot of things. I, I've picked up a lot of the atmosphere of that time and that period. And here's one of them that you may not have heard. And that is that... Um, the way you traveled between towns back then in that part of the world was mostly by wagon. Um, motorized vehicles were just coming in, and I'm, I'm not talking about my father's time, I'm talking about uh, a generation or two before that. And, uh, and if you were traveling to any major city that was on a railroad, then you tried to, you found your way to the nearest. Um, town that had a railway station, and then you took a train for the bulk of your distance uh, and of your journey. But if that wasn't possible, let's say you were going to the next town to see family or to uh, to visit another rabbi for the uh, Bible festival coming up, whatever people, people traveled for these reasons. And of course, for business was the most predominant reason. And um, it was always dangerous, right, because it was a journey that was almost always involved overnight. Uh, it was between two towns, and it, it went through remote and isolated territory. And it was not in the least bit uncommon, unfortunately, for the wagon driver to rob his business his businessmen passengers steal their money and leave their bodies uh, in a forest that they were passing through this unfortunately happened a lot and so over the period of time jews who um, traveled learned that there was only one way to try where you stood a chance of protecting yourself and that was 
they always watched to see if their wagon driver crossed himself as he passed by the church. And if he did, they felt reasonably confident that he was an honest driver and he would deliver them to their destination for the agreed-upon fee. But, as sometimes happened, uh, the wagon driver failed to pay any note to the church as they drove past, and at that point, uh, the, uh, the Jewish businessmen would almost invariably pay off the driver, get off, and try for another wagon. And, um, you know, wagons were the taxis of the day. That's how it used to be. And so, really, the, the idea that knowledge tells me anything about someone else's behavior, or for that matter, about my own, is uh, a rather foolish notion, because in reality, it's only beliefs that actually do shape my behavior and my action. Beliefs and behavior are very linked in that fashion. So to to the extent that I have anything uh, of integrity about me, that would be because of things I believe, not because of things I know. Um, the, uh, the, the reality is one of the, the, the biggest problems that the financial services industries have, uh, banking, finance, investments, is uh, how do you determine the trustworthiness of the people you hire given the huge sums of money involved? Uh, it's as far back as 1995 that one of the most stunning examples took place. Uh, Nick Leeson was a young um, person with very good credentials who knew a whole lot, and he had studied a great deal, and he had excellent qualifications. He was hired by Barings Bank, which was a very old, well-established, strong bank um, it's a bank that used to take care of high net worth individuals around the world. And uh, at one point, Nick, Lees- Nick Leeson was dispatched to either open, I don't remember, or to run the Singapore branch of the bank, certain aspects of the bank. And so he went to Singapore, and uh, and that was when he went rogue. And he literally... Um, took the bank down. I mean, he he did things that he shouldn't have done to in order to benefit himself. Uh, the sums involved were like in the billion-dollar range. And would you believe it, but a strong, well-old-established bank like Barings Bank was brought to its knees, bankrupted, and finally had its doors shut uh, because of what this one man did who over a period of time built up a trust in him, but there was absolutely nothing uh, to to guarantee that he was actually uh, trustworthy. They just didn't know that, and it turned out that he wasn't. And so uh, am I saying that only uh, Bible-believing religious Jews or Christians are trustworthy? Of course I'm not saying that. Uh, But what I am saying is that for the most part, Uh, people who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and believe in the words of his message uh, tend to be a good bet when it comes to integrity. 
uh, you know, they may not be the smartest people, they may not be the uh, best looking people, whatever you, whatever the criteria are you're looking at, but at least there is something to go on, which is a belief system that, uh, that says, you know, there's certain things I just would not do. And one of the reasons that over the years, communities of Bible believers have tended to be vulnerable to confidence tricksters is because we all tend to project, we all tend to assume other people are similar to us, and they just are trusting because they are trustworthy. And so um, that is a, uh, a, a fitting introduction uh, to what I want to explain in terms of, well, you know, I, I call it the God divide, uh, something that divides people in um, uh, around the world today, not only in the United States of America. Now, I'm recording this particular show uh, only about four days before the 2020 presidential election of uh, November the 3rd. And uh, it's an election between the incumbent President Donald Trump and uh, the Democratic candidate uh, Joe Biden and his Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. And I, I mention this because the polls are probably going to be every bit as unreliable or more unreliable than they were back in 2016. And I'm going to suggest a way, five questions that you could ask your friends, associates, neighbors, um, in order to establish a last-minute poll of your circle of the people you know. But to actually say to people, are you going to vote for Donald Trump or, or Joe Biden? That's a question that doesn't necessarily yield a reliable response, simply because there is so much vituperation and hostility aimed at President Trump and Vice President Pence that many, many people are reluctant to even acknowledge that uh, they support the president. And so that's not a polling question that does a lot of good. What I'm going to suggest is that the the real polling question, that, and none of them are doing it, by the way, as far as I know, none of the polling organizations are doing this, but uh, they would do better if they did. And, and that is focusing not on trying to get answers to direct questions of which candidate you're likely to support and are you a likely voter, etc., etc. Um, all of that largely, in my view, a waste of time. Because what is true around the world in many, many countries is even more true in the United States of America, and that is that there is a God divide. And, and that's a big thing. Um, you know, over the years, Gallup does a survey uh, in Canada and in the United States and other countries um, on the question of how important is God to you. 
And it always, it's been hovering around about the uh, 70 to 80% range. In other words, 80, 70 to 80% of North American respondents uh, said that God was very important. It's a shockingly high number. But uh, I've looked at many, many surveys on this topic that back up the conclusion that similar to many other people, perhaps less so in Europe, but in North America, um, people are very, let me say, obsessed with God in a, in a good sense, not a bad sense. And, um, you know, there have been attempts to remove in God we trust from the currency, and uh, there have been various other attempts to, to, to do uh, heavy damage to the God-centric quality of the United States of America, and it always runs into difficulties. It doesn't go smoothly. Now, uh, in, in, in many Western countries, the cultural struggle over religion and morality and God that began with the Renaissance has pretty much ended with secularism seeming to win handily. So although many, many people still say God is very important to them, uh, when it comes to control of the levers of power, uh, the secular side wins, having taken charge of education from kindergarten to graduate school, having taken charge of government bureaucracies, and having taken charge largely of popular entertainment. Uh, that is why you have a cultural struggle, because there's a lot of people who feel God is very important to them. And uh, in 2016, a lot of those people voted for Donald Trump, even though 82% of the levers of power are not in the hands of people who feel God is important. So you might conclude, as I do, that many people who feel that God is important in their lives feel disempowered and disenfranchised. That's what I think is really going on in the United States of America. Now, in England, for instance, um, only about 2 or 3% of the population attends church regularly. In the United States, the comparable figure is certainly still over 50%. It's well down from what it was in 1950 and 1960, but it's still up somewhere around about the 50% mark. Um, a lot of Europe finds itself in, in a post-Christian age. But make no mistake, it seems that evangelical Christianity is making a very strong comeback. Yes, in Europe. So when people say that uh, church attendance is very low in England, what they're talking about is the Anglican church. And they're absolutely right. The church attendance there is very low. But on my last speaking trip to the United Kingdom, I spoke in over 20 churches, and every single one of them was standing room only. And not just because I was there, that's how they are all the time. So, and those were not um, Anglican churches. Those were all non-denominational Protestant churches, evangelical churches. 
It's interesting that um, President Donald Trump this last week made a statement that he his religious affiliation is non-denominational Protestant. Uh, in other words, he's saying, I am now an evangelical Christian. Uh, whether you believe him or not will depend on what you feel about him. Uh, there are many people who will say this was just a cynical attempt to win more Christian votes, and then there are other people who feel differently. I, I for one, tend to think that uh, it was probably uh, a, a, an authentic um, conversion, something that has been happening, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if that turns out to be very much the case, because I don't think you can go through what this man has been put through, unlike any other president in the history of the republic, for the entire four years, uh, an extraordinary uh, unwillingness on the part of his political foes to accept the results of the 2016 election. Complete unwillingness. And I should point out that uh, back in um, the year 2000, uh, the election was between Al Gore, the Democrat, and uh, George W. Bush. Um, George W. Bush won the um, the uh, Electoral College, but not the popular vote. The win in the Electoral College was not a big win, but um, Al Gore called him to concede. And then Al Gore spoke to his lawyers, and would you believe it, uh, those of you who may not remember that election of 2020, uh, 2000, Al Gore called uh, George Bush up again, and uh, and said, "By the way, I'm I'm pulling back my concession phone call. I'm not conceding." And it was an astonishing. I mean, people were baffled. But that was then when, uh, although the election was finished, Al Gore took it to the courts, and once it hit the courts, it's made it made their way. It made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And that was when words like chads and hanging chads and uh, split chads entered the vocabulary. Chads were little things that you, in order to vote in Florida, you used a little device to push them out of the card, the election card. And, uh, and again, in 2000, a democratic unwillingness to accept the election. And in 2016, an unwillingness to accept the outcome of the election. And in the same spirit in which I said earlier that people tend to project and see others themselves in others, uh, the Democrat, the left, has been pushing incessantly for the last year um, uh, on the idea that President Donald Trump will, will not concede when he loses the election. He will not leave. Uh, well, that's what we've seen the Democrats doing, at least for two elections, 2016 and 2000. Uh, and so the assumption they make the assumption that uh, that the Republican side will do exactly the same. All of that, of course, lies a week into the future, and so uh, we will yet see. But important to understand, I think, that the real distinction, the real gap in America, more than between Republican and and Democrat. Uh, certainly more than between more than between blacks and whites and men and women and rich and poor and all the marxist ideas of what separates people um, i think is fundamentally this question of how you feel about god and uh, and 
the arguments are are very very real. Um, the fact is that uh, America is divided between those who see Bible-based Judeo-Christian morality as vital for a nation's survival, and those who see Bible-based Judeo-Christian morality as nothing but a primitive obstruction to what they see as progress. And um, and the, the reality is that this divide, this God divide, really covers a lot of uh, very serious arguments. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, here's one question. Are devout followers of God fundamentalists and dangerous, or are they the bulwark of society? I know many people who would say that devout followers of God, whether it's Allah or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the God of the Buddhists, all devout, for actually they like the Buddhists, the all devout followers of God are fundamentalists and they're dangerous. And I, on the other hand, believe that, uh, that followers in the God of the Bible are the bulwark of society. And so that question translates the theme from an abstract uh, argument of, you know, do you believe in God? Do you not believe in God? But it, it boils it down to something you can get your arms around. Let me give you another one. Should all faiths be equal in the public eye? Or has America been successful specifically because of its Christian foundations? Okay, so again, I think that America has been successful specifically because of its Christian foundations. Um, I think that Africa is showing enormous promise. I think that long-term investment in Africa makes sense. Why? Because the continent is racing towards Christianity. The continent is becoming more and more and more committed to evangelical Christianity. And that's a good sign, I think. I think it, it speaks very, very optimistically for the future. But I also know that there are many, many people who regard all faiths as equal and, uh, and all faiths should be the same and America should give exactly the same homage to Wiccanism uh, or to uh, any, any religion as to Christianity. I'm not talking about legal issues and constitutional matters, obviously. Um, how about this one? Does human suffering disprove God and show God to be either impotent or cruel? Now, I know many people will say, yeah, absolutely. I know many Jewish people, by the way, and, and I, I'm going to need to make this distinction very clearly for you that when I speak about religious, I'm not talking about external trappings of religion. When I speak about religious... I'm not speaking about uh, wearing a certain outfit or talking in a certain way. Or, no, I'm talking about relationship with God at its deepest level. And so, yes, I know many people, including Jewish people, who believe that human suffering says that God is either impotent or cruel. Either he's a God who's not able to stop human suffering or he's a God who's cruel. If you've been a regular listener of the Rabbi Daniel Appen show, then you will have heard me more than once 
explain why that is false and explain how it is it makes all the sense in the world uh, that human suffering is a reality and it's part of the system god put in place not because he can't do anything different and not because he's cruel but because he's told us already hey <laughs> this is the kind of suffering that will result in certain circumstances but that's not for today i've done that before um, a fourth question. Is belief in God chiefly responsible for all the wars and killing the world has endured and continues to endure? And again, there are many people who completely ignorantly insist that religious wars have killed more people than anything else. It's simply not true. But people are looking for rationales and justifications to dispense with having to think about God. Um, then here's, here's another one, number five. Is God a crutch for the simple-minded while intelligent and independent people rely on themselves? Now, you know that that's the outlook you're going to find in every American public high school, in every geek, in every government indoctrination camp, in every kindergarten, I mean university, uh, that's the attitude you will get. God is a crutch for the simple-minded people. While the intelligent and independent among us, well, we depend on ourselves. You know, that's I'm, I've heard that so many times in, in uh, debates and arguments. Um, but, you know, that it's laughable and foolish, but that's indeed what many people do believe. Does prayer appeal to the primitive and have no basis for rational understanding? So how, how do people think about prayer? Right. To say that you're grappling with prayer, even to say you have trouble praying, you're not comfortable just opening up in conversation to God, uh, I, I understand that. But that's very different from saying that praying is primitive and there's nothing rational or understanding about it at all. Again, um, something utterly ignorant, but many, I mean, lying at the heart of the God divide in America and many other countries today. Uh, can you be a good and decent person without a belief in God? Yes, you absolutely can. I've said that many times. Can you raise good and decent children without a belief in God? Probably not. Can you be sure that your grandchildren will be good and decent people if you are not religious? Uh, absolutely not. With uh, Almost impossible. Almost, uh, almost impossible. Not going to happen. Um, if you are a non-religious, good, decent human being, then I'm willing to bet that your grandparents were religious. And um, if you are a religious person, uh, there is at least a good shot that your children and your grandchildren will be uh, good, decent people. In other words, it goes from religion to decency but it never goes from decency to decency. In other words, people who are just good and decent, uh, and, and that's wonderful. I love people who are good and decent people. I'm only sad that they cannot reproduce. Uh, 
it is very very rare now you might say well my children are good and decent and the answer is you don't really know until they've started raising their own children or if they don't start raising their own children but while your children are young you don't really know if they are good and decent so uh, that's an, a very important conversation between decency and goodness on the one hand and connection with God on the other. Uh, does belief in God make people judgmental and require devotees to feel and express contempt and hostility for those who depart from doctrine? Let me say that one once again. If you believe in God, does that tend to make you judgmental? And do you uh, feel the need to express contempt and hostility for those who depart from your religion and from your faith? Now, again, I know people who tell stories, both Jewish and Christian. Well, I, you know, I left the faith. I left the faith and my family never spoke to me again. All that sort of stuff we get again and again and again. Um, I had a wonderful experience a couple of months ago giving a speech to a group of Amish folks in Pennsylvania, and uh, I had a chance to hear a little bit about what happens to children who leave the faith. And there are doctrinal consequences, but family connections invariably remain strong and close and loving. So um, there's a lot of misunderstanding on this kind of thing. But when what I'm what I'm trying to do in giving you these uh, these observations is uh, nail down some of the very practical, real life um, contradictions between those whether you're in the United States or in Europe or in Africa or in Asia, it doesn't matter wherever you are, or Australia. We've got so many wonderful listeners in Australia now. Um, but it's always, it's always the same. It's on these. I've just, I've just chosen 12 different issues that people really differ on. Um, is God incompatible with progress and modernity? And again, those there are people on one side of the divide who tend to say, yeah, you know what, uh, it, the, the more connected people are with God, the less, the more primitive you are, the more you're tied to superstition, and the less you know about progress and modernity. And then on the other hand, you, you've got uh, uh, many, many people who are deeply devoted to their faith. Um, who are extremely modern and very on top of up-to-date technology. Um, this is uh, this is a very popular one. This is number ten. Um, does God require people to renounce passion and exclude sensuality and fun from their lives? Very very common uh, mis misbelief. Very common. Oh yeah, that's the you know that's the real problem with a connection with God. Have you noticed that religious people have no fun and they they don't know what sex is and they don't have proper relationships and uh, and essentially religion just strips out all the joy and pleasure and fun of life. A lot of people, a lot of people believe that. A lot of people on the pro-God side of the great God divide 
say, no, not at all, is that we are built with um, mechanisms that tend to reduce the response to stimuli. In other words, if uh, you take a certain drug in order to, you know, a bad drug in order to get high, you notice that as time goes by, you have to take more and more and more because of this rule that the body starts responding less and less to a given stimulus. Um, you know, it's, it's like that uh, in, in almost every aspect. It's our response to medication. Um, it's, uh, it's also building up immunity, by the way, is part of that, right, for bad. In other words, when a body responds badly to an infection, a little while goes by and eventually the body is able to deal with it. And so that's how that works. So consequently, if you don't have the the set of religious rules and restrictions and regulations that do not rule out joy and passion and fun not at all all they do is regulate it in order to make sure that you don't ever reach the point of overstimulation where you end up feeling absolutely nothing and so, in that sense, a religion is a huge gift to the enjoyment of fun and passion of life, very much. And it also holds society together. And that's why, as I've mentioned in the past, one of the great sociologists of the 20th century, Joseph Daniel Unwin, U-N-W-I-N, did this huge study, uh, which has not only never been uh, rebutted or refuted, but it's widely accepted by even to this day. It's just that sociologists in today's secular academic environment do not want to pay any attention to him. But what he said was societies that place no restriction at all on sexuality and sensuality vanish very quickly and produce absolutely nothing. They become societies of, of waste and, uh, and dissipation of energy. And the only societies that evolve in a civilized direction are those uh, in which there is regulation of sensuality. Um, I said I'd give you 12. Okay, 11. Um, does God prefer poor people to rich people? That's, that's a pretty good one. Does God prefer poor people to rich people? And... Uh, Wide, widespread belief, widespread belief that that is the case, right? That God must like poor people more than rich people. Somehow, religion and poverty go hand in hand. A lot of people believe that, but it isn't true. As a matter of fact, I happen to know that there is, in the United States of America, there is a private and very quiet organization, a sort of club of wealthy families uh, who donate and give away a huge amount of money. In total, what they give away is um, equivalent or more than the total gross domestic product of small countries. This is just a group 
of American wealthy families who give away money, very often to poor countries. And it's a religious organization. These are only religious families. This doesn't include Warren Buffett. It doesn't include Bill Gates. It only includes religious Christian families. And so, does God prefer poor people to rich people? Yeah, <laughs> no, not at all. But I understand why people think that. Um, okay, uh, here's a final one. Number 12. Is a belief in evolution, a scientific or a religious issue? I like that one, right? Because the truth is that science cannot tell you what to believe. Science cannot tell you how to act. Science cannot even explain things. Now, you may have agreed with me when I said it can't tell you what to believe and it can't tell you how to act, but you probably raise your eyebrows when I tell you that science cannot explain things. But it's absolutely true. Science cannot explain. It can describe. It's a huge difference, right? And it's, it's worthwhile being aware of this. Science cannot explain, but it can describe. Uh, in the 17th century, when Sir Isaac Newton uh, began to ponder gravity and the extraordinary force that we know as gravity, um, he studied it and analyzed and worked hard at it and finally came up with the uh, inverse square law saying that the force between, shall we say, the, the, uh, the earth and the apple in the apocryphal story uh, was the uh, proportional to the weight or the mass of the earth and the mass of the apple divided by the distance between them squared. And that turned out to be a perfect description of how the moon traveled around the earth. This gravitational pull then explained that orbits were a conical section and everything made sense. But nobody knew, least of all Isaac Newton, what the force was. Like, he was not able to explain the force. He could describe it. And to this day, there are ongoing attempts to explain the force of gravity, but um, they are not uh, conclusive. We, we, we don't know. Science is not any good at explaining a thing, although it's wonderful at describing it. So I can measure how oil burns, uh, what grades of oil burn at what temperatures and how much thermal capacity is there in oil versus coal. Um, but I can't explain why oil burns and vinegar doesn't. I mean, I, I can in the context of what we understand to be the oxidation process of burning, but there could be other ways of burning as well. Science doesn't explain things. It certainly doesn't tell you how to behave, and it certainly doesn't tell you what to believe. But uh, even on explaining things, science just isn't any good. Describing, yes. Explaining, not. And that is one of the inherent shortcomings in the so-called theory of evolution, because it's stepping outside of what science does. 
it's the same reason that when politicians say, we must follow the science on the coronavirus, and they mean that that's uh, indicating that we must shut down and we must wear masks and we must damage the economy. All of that is a complete abuse of science. That sort of statement is made by somebody with zero scientific background. As I've often said before, science does not lie, but people do. Even scientists lie. And so um, we just have to be very understanding that uh, when my number 12 one, which was, is belief in evolution a scientific or religious issue? Yeah, a whole lot of people are going to say it's a scientific issue, but a whole lot of other of us are going to say, no, it's a religious issue, meaning that belief in evolution is as much a belief as a belief in creationism. Uh, these are two beliefs and the notion that science proves it's rubbish. I mean, it's just not true. It's obviously only the result of a completely secular academic environment where metaphysical involvement in the origins of life are excluded de facto. The academy will not accept the notion of a metaphysical participation in the origins of life. Therefore, they've got to find something that comes close to working, and, well, maybe evolution will be it. But everybody who understands these things understands the huge flaws and fundamental fallacies within the so-called theory of evolution. People get that. The problem is that they operate within an academic environment in which no alternative can be tolerated. Uh, Albert Einstein was essentially a secular Jew. Now, yeah, I, look, I know about the statements, you know, God doesn't play dice with the cosmos and so on and so forth. But um, one of the interesting things is that uh, there was a lot of, there used to be, again, going back to the first half of the 20th century, a lot of discussion about the origins of the universe. And, uh, and most philosophers from the Enlightenment onwards and most scientists into the 20th century uh, went with a steady-state theory. Basically, uh, the universe has always been here. End of story. It just is. That's all there is to it. And again, I totally understand that. <laughs> you, you, you're grappling with this problem. And um, along came some very key people in that period who proved beyond all shadow of a doubt in the expanding universe. Now, the expanding universe uh, is, is, I'm not going to try and explain it now. I'm not even sure that I have a 100% full grasp of it myself. But, um, but it essentially means that everything in the universe is expanding. And because everything is expanding, you can't notice it or feel it because it's all expanding at the same time. And everything is expanding proportionately. But, you see, if that is the case then we can run the movie backwards and say, okay, what happens? Right as we watch the movie in real time, the universe is expanding. But let's reverse the movie. Let's run the tape back and see what happens. And we see the universe contracting and contracting and contracting. 
And sure enough, eventually it contracts, and you see on the movie nothing but a point and then a blinding flash of light and this huge explosion of material moving outwards, and the movement outwards never stops, and that's the expanding universe. But that's the origin of the theory I'm sure you've heard called the Big Bang Theory. No, it's not the name of a television program, or maybe it is, but what it really is is uh, uh, the explanation it's not science because it can't be proven but it's the explanation for the origins of the universe that every body today almost every person in physics and mathematics and astronomy accept the it did start with a big bang when einstein was invited to california to look at the was it california uh, or the east coast i'm sorry i don't remember einstein came to the united states specifically to look at the uh, research on the Big Bang Theory. And um, and he had been opposed to it all along, and he was very honest about it. He said he has to be opposed to it because the Big Bang Theory then, and I don't remember if he said allows or requires a deity. <laughs> uh, and he said, I can't accept that. And that was part of his uh, Jewish atheism. That was just just a part of who Albert Einstein was. He was a very high IQ gentleman, but uh, he was blinded on the uh, on the faith side of things. And so uh, he uh, he came. He sort of said, "Yeah, I'm forced to accept. I'm forced to accept the Big Bang theory." And he he left it at that. But he was bothered by it because it has these real-world implications of metaphysical involvement in the beginning. At any rate, these are uh, some of the things that divide America down the God divide, what I call the great God divide in America, and it's true in other countries as well, too. So I said I'd give you five questions. Those were 12 observations that um, th- that showed the fissure in the culture. But I now want to give you five questions to ask your nearest and dearest, to ask Uncle Fred, uh, to ask the folks you work with if you're interested to know which way they're going to vote. And you don't want to actually ask them which way they vote. These five questions will give you a very, very high degree of certainty as to how they vote. Uh, Question number one, do you believe homosexuality is morally wrong? If they say yes, they're voting for President Trump. If they say no, they're voting for Joe Biden. Uh, Question number two, would you look down on someone who had an affair while they're married? Would you look down Would you think less of somebody who had an affair while married? If they say yes, they're voting for Donald Trump. If they say no, they're voting for Joe Biden. Uh, Number three, do you believe sex before marriage is morally wrong? Do you believe sex before marriage is morally wrong? If they say yes, they're voting for Donald Trump. If they say no, they're voting for Joe Biden. Number four, is religion very important in your life? If the answer is yes, they're voting for Donald Trump. And if they say no, they're voting for Joe Biden. Uh, number, question number five, the rich need, do, do you agree that the rich need to do more for society? 
If they say yes, they're voting for Joe Biden. If they say no, they're voting for Donald Trump. Those are five questions. You don't have to ask more than five, and you may not even have to ask all five. But for sure, if you get five yeses on those questions, um, then you know you're looking at a Trump voter, and if you get five no's, then you're looking at a Biden vote. And I have to, I realize I just have to rephrase the last one because what did I, I said the rich need to do more for society. Um, I would have to say, do you disagree? Do you do you agree that the rich do not need to do more for society? And uh, the and again, those of you who've listened to previous shows over the over the last little while will know exactly what I mean by this. In other words, this is not a declaration of venality and greed and selfishness, not at all. Um, to say, do you uh, disagree? that the rich need to do more for society um, is because you realize that this is part of the left's attempt to carve a canyon into the culture um, based on the materialism of Marx, namely, uh, you know, the rich are the evil ones. We've got to go get the rich. We've got to tax the rich. And if you think that way, you're voting for Biden. If you think correctly and you understand what's really going on, you're a Trump voter. So that is um, really pretty much all that I'm going to share with you today on, on these topics. But I look forward to gauging your interest in them based on the letters you send me and uh uh, that will tell me whether I'm going to delve more deeply into any of this later on or uh, whether we'll leave it for now and do completely different topics in the shows up ahead. But uh, the um, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, you are able to send me a, an email on the website, and yes, I will see it, and as many of you have discovered, I answer a, a fair number of them, um, the ones that are not overly long, the ones that don't ask me too many questions, and um, I I answer, I actually do. So you go to the rabbidaniellappin.com, R-A-B-B-I, right? Rabbidaniellappin.com, uh, one word, and... Um, you uh, can go to the about us and then in there you'll see contact us and sure enough i will see your response that way so i appreciate that you do that also i'd like you to take a look at uh, the download of my book america's real war it is available right now and uh, if you really want an explanation of what is really going on, not just in American politics, but in the culture clash that is driving so much of everything that is going on in America and around the world, download yourself a copy of America's Real War. It really will blow you away. I'm serious. It's um, uh, I, I don't even know how I wrote it, to tell you the truth. I, I really feel that I had considerable divine and prophetic assistance because it's extraordinary to me that a book i wrote nearly 20 years ago is more relevant today than it was when i wrote it in other words i made observations when i wrote it that were not that easy to see 
in society in uh, you know in 2000 but if you look now you say oh yeah that's right there it is it's exactly right so uh, enjoy that i know you will it's called america's real war and it can be downloaded as an ebook and uh, quickly easily and economically you will enjoy that i know so uh, that brings us close to the end of today uh, where i can't really go much further for now but you will remember that this the rabbi daniel lappen show is the show for when you want to strenuously stretch your soul you come to this show and there are many many shows you can go back and listen to earlier ones and when you want to engage in speculative somersaults of the spirit then you come to the rabbi daniel lappen show and um, enjoy it and that's exactly why i do it you be sure to let me know you enjoy it be sure to let me know where you're listening from i i love those letters and um, i wish you a week of great happiness and fulfillment as you develop your relationships with your faith with your family with your friendships with your finances and yes with your physical fitness as well i'm rabbi daniel lappin god bless